think it's fitting on Reformation Sunday to re- recite that. Um, some of you might be bothered. Maybe you haven't heard that. And I believe in the one holy Catholic church. Um, that's not the Roman Catholic church. That's the universal church of all the saints. And so as we join with them, let's, uh, let's go to the word of God. We're going to start in Romans chapter 1. Don't worry. We're not uh, reverting. <clears throat> I saw one person was asking, is this a typo? Um, are you sure it's not chapter 16? And I joked with the staff, yeah, just tell them uh, I, I've decided I, I, I didn't preach it as well as I liked. I'm going to start over. And, uh, and we're going to start back with Romans, and, and we'll give this another shot. No, we're, we're not doing that. Uh, I'm just going to use this as an anchor verse this morning. Yeah, you're welcome, brother. These are powerful words which have uh, not only affected the original recipients of this, but have resounded throughout the history of the church, and I hope to show that to us this morning. Apostle Paul writes, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and then the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. This morning is going to be a little bit different than the typical sermons that I've I preach, or they are preached on a week-in, week basis. Typically, we, we preach what we call expositional sermons, which are verse-by-verse uh, verse through a, a book or a passage of Scripture. And we'll return to that next Sunday as we get into Romans 16, verses 17 through 21. Um, but uh, over the last few years, we've, we've kind of made something of, of Reformation Sunday, uh, using this as an opportunity to educate our, ourselves of the, uh, of, of, I guess, thinking back of what tradition that we come from and reminding ourselves that uh, the gospel is not something new. This isn't an American uh, brand, um, but that actually we have received this gospel from those who have been faithful to go before us. Uh, I don't know about you, but I hadn't heard nothing of the Reformation growing up. I had no idea what it was. Now, I wasn't a very good student either, so when I, I learned uh, history class, European history, uh, that's a big piece of, of the puzzle. Well, I, I must have slept through many of those lectures because uh, I knew nothing of it. It wasn't until I became a Christian and, then, and, and heard that there were these weirdos who didn't uh, uh, do Halloween, but they did Reformation Day. And uh, I say that tongue-in-cheek because I'm now one of those weirdos. But uh, um, I was what's the Reformation? And it wasn't until really seminary that I, I learned uh, the story. And so I don't want that to be true of any of us uh, this morning. And so what we're going to do is, uh, is, is reflect on the story uh, this morning. And I try to anchor it in the book of Romans where we've been over the last year and a half. But uh, historically speaking, October 31st, 1517, is what is known as the, uh, the, the, the launching of the, what we call the Protestant Reformation. And, uh, and, and so this started off with, uh, with Martin Luther, as, as most people uh, think of it, and the nailing of the 95 Theses. And so I thought it would be fitting this morning to uh, give a sermonic biography of Martin Luther. 
What do we mean when we talk about the Protestant Reformation? What are the 95 theses? What, what do, why are we talking about this guy, Martin Luther? Uh, my wife's parents were on a European tour. Uh, this is kind of funny, kind of not. And they're in Germany. And they see a monument and the plaque that says something. It says Martin Luther. And somebody said, who is Martin Luther? And the tour guide said, you know, Martin Luther King. He, he was a civil rights leader. And in uh, in the U.S. and and I was, and I heard that story and I was just like, yeah, I don't want that to happen to any of you. I want us to know that Martin Luther was a German monk um, who came to know the Lord Jesus Christ and has served the church well. So why would we do a sermon on a on a biography or a man? Well, I think it's helpful to be reminded of the saints who have gone before us. And see that they too live by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, believing the same gospel that we believe and hold dear to today. We want to be like, at least Israel of old was instructed, to remember God's faithfulness amongst his people in the past. Because if we remember God's faithfulness in the past, we can be sure of his faithfulness in the present. And so it's good to retell of God's faithfulness, even, even in church history. Um, as we move beyond the books of Acts and into the, uh, to, uh, God's work amongst his people um, outside of written scripture as well. And so I thought it would be good and, and fitting for us uh, to, to hear this biography, this story grounded in, in the things that we know, particularly through the book of Romans, and tell the story of Martin Luther, the man whom God used to call Germany, and really spark a flame of, uh, 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 throughout Europe and call them back to the gospel. And what I hope is actually that this starts maybe a tradition here at Oak Park. We'll see how this goes, um, where each Reformation Sunday I'll do one of these, not on Martin Luther, but of a significant figure through church history and use it as a reminder of what God has done in the past and what he's doing now in the present. But as we examine today the life of Martin Luther, I want us to marvel not at the man. We're going to talk a lot about Martin Luther. But I don't want us to marvel at the man, though his life is fascinating. But I want us to marvel at the God and Savior of the man. I want us to see in this story God's faithfulness to do what Jesus said to Peter. I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Furthermore, I want us on a more personal level to fall in love with the scriptures. We're going to see that Martin Luther was a man of the word, that the word opened up his eyes, the word transformed his life, and he disseminated the word, which transformed the lives of many. I want us to see, as Luther did, that it is in the scripture that we meet the risen Christ who lavishes his grace upon us. It's in the scripture that the promises of God become real to us, that he will forgive us of all of our sins and secure for us a place in his kingdom that will endure forever and ever. Amen. And so to that end, I want us to see the power of the gospel for salvation as we consider three elements of Luther's life. We're going to look at Luther's life apart from the gospel, his awakening to the gospel, and his legacy for the gospel. Well, let's begin considering Luther's life apart from the gospel. Luther was born to Hans and Margaret uh, Luther, 
on November 10th, 1483 in Eisleben, Germany. And as any good Catholic family should do, Martin was uh, baptized on the next day in, as an infant in the church. And, and the reason is he was named Martin was that they gave him this name because that was the saint of the day that day. So the Saint Martin was his day, and so on that day they said, well, Martin will be his name. And so they named him Martin. Uh, Luther's father, Hans, he was a hardworking miner who was striving very much so to uh, improve the situation of his own family, trying to make a good living and, and try to make a, a life for Luther better than the life that he had. And early on, his parents, Luther's parents that is, realized that Luther was gifted intellectually. He was a gifted young boy. And so they sought work to capitalize upon his intellectual giftedness, and, and they paid out a life for him on their own. Uh, they said that we're going to groom this young man that he may become a lawyer. And so that was their plan for Luther, and when he had turned of age, he enrolled at the University of Erfurt to do just that, to study law. Now, their, Luther's parents' aspirations were high, but they had one worry. One worry that could derail all of it. See, Luther was very serious about the matters of religion, and that bothered them. He was serious and, and would take things a little too far in their mind. In fact, his historical figure was a Franciscan monk named Prince Wilhelm of Anhalt. Now, most of you don't have your historical figures as monks and priests and pastors, but Luther did. You know, they didn't have... Uh, Kindles and iPads and TV at this time. So you, you read of people, and, and Luther latched on to Prince Wilhelm. Well, what concerned Luther's parents was that Prince Wilhelm was quite a devoted monk. In fact, he ended up killing himself after beating and starving himself to death, uh, seeking to appease God for his sins. And this was Luther's role model. And so this was certainly not what Luther's parents wanted him uh, to be influenced by, did not want him to go in the, those footste uh, footsteps. And I imagine some of you parents are looking forward to your son or daughter going off to college, maybe leaving the influences that are here, that they may you know, kind of blossom on their own and, 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 and maybe have some sense uh, brought into them. Well, this was the case for Luther's parents. So they sent him off to university. However, their fears were realized. Uh, Luther did not give up his sincere devotion to his religion. Um, in fact, one night he was coming home from visiting his, his parents. He was 21 years old. And as the story tells us, he was, he was walking home in a, in a severe storm. Uh, and he was walking home, and, and, and the tradition tells us that the lightning struck him so close that it that threw him to the ground. And he was very disturbed by this. He was fearing certain death. And the problem was for Luther, there, there wasn't a priest nearby. There wasn't a Catholic church for him to run into and hide. And so he did what the only thing he knew he could do. I'm sure this might be what you would do, right? Call, call out to the patron saint, Saint Anne. And so he, he called out to Saint Anne, asking her to save him. Now, why would he call out to Saint Anne? You, you don't know this. But St. Anne was the patron saint of sailors and protector from storms. This is straight out of paganism. But this is exactly what they would do. They would pray to different saints who had powers over certain things. 
And so he cried out to her, and he made a vow. He said, St. Anne, if you will save me, I promise I will become a monk. And so that's how he became a monk. And you can only imagine how thrilled his parents were when he came home, and he says, I have decided to withdraw from the university, and I have enrolled at the monastery. Be a... Probably a nightmare for most of us. And his father was furious at the news. He, he considered what Luther was doing was the devil's work. Luther was wasting. And I can kind of empathize with this father. You're wasting all the hard work that I have done for you. You're wasting the money that's been invested in you, and you're throwing it all away. Because for Luther, he would have sold all his possessions to be given the monk's garb. And in all this, what I want us to understand as we think about the life of Luther, what we're preparing to see is that Luther had a keen sense of his own guilt and shame and sinfulness. Though his parents, and as we'll see, even his fellow monks, they thought he was mad, that he was just over the top, Luther had a true awareness of who he was before a holy and righteous God. Even though right now he, he has no hope. But what I want us to see is that that disposition is actually the place that we should all find ourselves. We read in that, that passage in Psalm 34 that it's the crushed in spirit whom the Lord saves. Or we might be more familiar with Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. As we think about this story and where Luther is at, his sensitivity to his sin, which is only going to heighten as he enters the monastery, it was Luther's humility and brokenness over his own sin that was preparing him to receive the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's the story of us all. We have to be broken and we have to become aware of our sin before the good news is good news. Well, for Luther, it would be very good news. As Luther entered the monastery and entered the world of monkery, as he called it, he entered the world of rules. Rules which were intended to, to accrue righteousness and, and even climb the ladder to heaven. However, the life of rules served very much like the law of God in Luther's life. The law, as we've learned in Romans 7, reveals our sin. It's like a mirror. It shows us our utter failure. It doesn't give us hope. It kills us. Well, that was Luther's experience, even as he sought to earn righteousness before a holy and righteous God. The rules of the monastery served as an everyday reminder that he falls short of the glory of God. And he knew that every act of, of prayer and every deed that he did, he was, he was knowing that it must come from a sincere heart. And here was the problem. He was constantly questioning, Do, is my heart sincere enough? Maybe that's you here this morning. Maybe you are going through rote tradition, going through uh, showing up at church, reading your Bible, going to do acts of charity, and you're hoping, maybe I'm sincere enough. Maybe it'll be acceptable enough, but you know deep down in your conscience that it's not. This is what worried Luther's soul. He was always questioning, have I done enough? Am I sincere enough? There were so many sins to account for. And even in the monastery, he had to account for not having wandering eyes. Get this. It was a sin to laugh. 
And for some of you, you'd really be up a creek. If you sang poorly. And so for these reasons and many more, Luther would spend up to six hours at a time in the confessional, wearing out the priest. Times he would leave the confessional and then he would remember, I forgot a sin I haven't confessed. Or my heart, it just wandered and he would run right back in. He had an extreme sensitivity to his own sin and lack of um, adequacy. This is what Luther said reflecting back on his life at this time. He said, if ever a monk got into heaven by his monkery, it was I. Luther's angst culminated in 1507 when he was assigned to perform his first mass. Now this was terrifying to Luther. Because what Luther was going to have to do, even in speaking Latin, which nobody else understood, he was going to have to address the God of all the earth. He was going to have to address in his mind the judge of all the earth. And this is something that he had never done in his life. It just speaks to the darkness of the time. You did not approach God. You could not approach God. No, you must go through mediators. And for Luther, that would have been Mary or one of the saints. But here, on this day, he was going to have to approach God himself on his own. He was so terrified to perform the Mass, worried that he would mess it up, and in fact, he does. He fails utterly. In the Mass, you would have lifted up the cup, and you would have been uh, saying your phrases in, in Latin. And the problem is, is that he was shaking so nervously that he ends up spilling the cup. Can you imagine that? And what makes matters worse, worse is the understanding of the Catholic Church was that that was the very blood of Christ he was spilling on the floor. And now... He's already filling with guilt. Now he's just dumped Jesus on the floor. So you can see Luther is overcome by his just deep sense of inadequacy. And he feels the weight of his sin. He is certainly not worthy to approach God. Well, up until this point, Luther had little access to the scripture. He had some, and he was beginning to, to, to go into the library where the, a Bible would be chained there, and he would come in, and he would, he would sneak away to go read the scriptures, but he was not finding a ton, ton of comfort there. But nevertheless, he was searching. He was searching for relief. How can I have my sins forgiven? Well, soon he was sent to the Augustinian Monastery in Wittenberg, where he would have access to study the scripture. In fact, he would go on to pursue a doctorate in theology. And it was here that the guilt-laden Luther would have his heart transformed by the good news of justification by faith alone in Christ alone. So we come now to Luther's awakening to the gospel. Most of us, when we think of the, the Protestant Reformation, and specifically Martin Luther, we think of the 95 Theses. Maybe we, we attach that, that, that event to him, and, and that's rightfully so. And, uh, and, and while this was the act that God providentially used to awaken uh, not only Germany, but, but soon all of Europe to the gospel, interestingly enough, it was the very act that God was providentially going to use to drive Luther to the gospel. We tend to think Luther was already uh, had his firm doctrine of justification by faith alone and was going after the church with the 95 Theses. That's actually not what was going on. 
What were the 95 theses? That might be helpful for us to start. Well, they were questions or uh, propositions that were meant to stir debate amongst the academic community. For Luther, he was, he was bothered by what he saw as the abuse of indulgences being practiced uh, in the church. Uh, indulgences were believed to be a, a, a sacrament by which you could shave time off for previously committed sins. Uh, shave time off in purgatory, that is, a kind of a holding tank that would uh, purify you through fire so that you could be acceptable to God. And so as you had uh, practiced penance and done acts to seek forgiveness, you, could, you still hadn't worked off your time in purgatory. So indulgences were a means by which you could purchase these and shave off time. Well, well Luther wasn't so much uh, concerned about the the practice of indulgences at this time, but rather um, giving them out without a call to repentance. Because as he saw, uh, people needed to repent of their sins, and he had a great awareness of that. Well, this conflict really arose because of a certain traveling evangelist. His name was Johann Tetzel. And Tetzel was selling indulgences to raise money for the Pope to build St. Peter's Basilica in Rome. It was a building campaign, if you will. And the genius of Tetzel's plan was not only to sell indulgences to the living, but to sell them on behalf of the dead. Because there we got a lot more people to, to, to roll in. And so this is how it would go. He even had a, a nice memorable saying that he would come along and say, When the coin in the coffer rings, another soul from purgatory springs. And so he would say this as, as you would come forth and, and you would put your money in the coffer and you would receive a piece of paper that would tell you that your loved ones had been purged from purgatory. Tetzel was a manipulator. And, and in fact, they would have great um, kind of drama skits in, in town by which, um, you know, they would dress up as, as, as demons and, and pitchforks and people with fire, and they would have people who were burning in the fire and, and demons stabbing them with their pitchforks. And then Tetzel would come out, and he would, he would say, Don't you hear the voices of your dead parents? Have mercy on me, because we're in severe punishment and pain. From this you could redeem us with a small alms. Sounds like the TV evangelist today. Hey, all your problems can go away if you will just give me your money. We're going to see next week that's a mark of a false teacher. Tetzel's offer was just too good to be true. People didn't even need to confess their sins. All that was needed was your money. And that bothered Luther. And so in response to this injustice, Luther pinned and nailed his 95 theses to the Wittenberg Castle Church door so that debate could could ensue amongst not the common people, but actually an academic debate amongst the university. However, they were in a new age, kind of like we entered a new age in the 20s of Twitter and Facebook, 2000s, I said 20s, but I meant 2000s. Well, in their age, social media was done by paper, and it was uh, uh, the Gutenberg Press, the printing press was now available, and we don't know exactly how this happened, but it, it seems that someone took the 95 Theses off the door and said, hey, we need to distribute this. And they made multiple copies. And it began to spread throughout Germany. And so this is where the protest in Protestant comes from. Still at this time, Luther's not actually trying to challenge Rome. 
He thinks he's defending Rome. He's not trying to start a new church. He's trying to say, hey, here's a false teacher within the church. And I'm just calling us back to faithfulness of what he believes the church has always believed. And he's still in process here. But this would cause quite a stir and lead Luther on a journey that would not only change his life, but the church as we know it. A year later, after all this commotion is going, Luther enters a debate with another man. His name is Johann Eck. And the debate was over this, because this is where the crux of the matter was. Where does the authority of the church lie? Does it lie in the scriptures, or does it lie in the pope? And so Eck actually was setting Luther up with this question. Because if Luther said the authority lies in the Bible, well, then Luther is aligning himself with previous heretics who have been burned at the stake, such as John Huss and John Wycliffe. Now, why were John Huss and John Wycliffe burned at the stake? For translating the Bible and getting the Bible in people's hands. And this is why they were willing to die for it. Well, Luther... He's, he, he hadn't thought about that, and he initially denies such association. All he's trying to say is, no, I'm calling us to true faithfulness, to the, to the true faith of the true church. I'm not with the heretics. However, there was a recess in the debate. Luther decides to go read some of Huss's works, and he concludes, I am with Huss. I believe the same thing that John Huss believed. The Bible is the true authority for the church and not the Pope. And so as you begin to see, he realizes, I'm at odds with this whole system. And his confidence in the papacy began to severely crumble. This continued as Luther even began to pour himself in the scripture. This just drove him to the word of God all the more. In fact, as he had received his doctorate and was, uh, he was teaching at the University of Wittenberg, teaching through the Psalms. He taught through Romans. And this is amazing. He's, he's doing this as he still does not know the, the gospel of justification by faith alone. But the Lord is doing this, working in his heart as he is studying. And there was one passage, however, that terrified him. It was the passage that we read this morning from Romans 1, 16 through 17. In particular, verse 17, and even more particular, the phrase, the righteousness of God. Luther hated the righteousness of God. He viewed it as unyielding and only condemned him as a sinner. He had an ungodly fear. All he saw was the righteous condemnation of a God, of a holy God against sinners. And Luther knew, I'm a sinner. I cannot stand before a holy and righteous God. And so when he read those statements, he fled. He incurred a hatred of God, not a love for God. And maybe that's where some of you are today. When you hear the character of God, the righteousness of God, the holiness of God, you flee. Maybe you flee out of hatred of him. Maybe you flee out of fear of him. Because you see God's righteousness is only leaving you condemned in your sins. Well, for Luther, now 1519, his eyes were now opened to understanding the righteousness of God in light of the rest of Scripture. Not just the rest of Scripture, the rest of that passage. Listen to what he says. We have the quote up on the screen. This is his epiphany. At last... 
by the mercy of God, meditating day and night, I gave heed to the context of the words. There's just good hermeneutics right there, good practice of studying the Scripture. Read what's around. He goes on, to heed the context of the words, namely, in it the righteousness of God is revealed. As it is written, he who through faith is righteous shall live. There I began to understand that the righteousness of God is that by which the righteous lived by a gift of God, namely by faith. And this is the meaning. The righteousness of God is revealed by the gospel, namely the passive righteousness with which merciful God justifies us by faith. As it is written, he who through faith is righteous shall live. Here I felt that I was altogether born again and had entered paradise itself through open gates. Luther came to know the good news of salvation through Christ. He saw for the first time that through faith in Christ, through a trust in Christ and what he has done on the cross, that God's promise to give sinners the gift of righteousness is kept. That what God demands of us, the righteousness that God demands of each one of us, He supplies through His Son. And that is the good news. And, and maybe you're here trying to accrue your own righteousness. As Jonathan Edwards states, you would have no better chance to stand on that day than a spider web to hold back a, holding, a falling boulder. Your righteousness will do you no good on that day. Your righteousness and mine is like filthy rags in the sight of a holy God. But the good news is that when you come to faith in Christ, that your, your, your filthy righteousness is taken off and his righteousness is put on. And that is the glorious truth that Luther comes to know, the truth that is grounded in the Scriptures as it is written. For the Christian life is not about the sinner's struggle to achieve his or her own salvation and righteousness, but it's about accepting the righteousness of God that is made available through his Son. And so it was this awakening to the gospel that sparked a flame, a fire, a great revival that would break out as the light of the gospel would shine forth. So this leads us to Luther's legacy for the gospel. Over the next year, as Luther has this conversion, he went to work studying the scriptures all the more. He was not satisfied. Oh, now I understand the gospel. What else have I missed? So he'd study all the more, and he began dispersing his findings through, through a, a proliferation of writing. He, he wrote a, a massive amount between his sermons and his own tracts and, and books. However, he would no longer write for the academy. He wrote for the commoner, the layperson, the person in the pew. He said, we've got to get this to the people so that they could hear the saving messages of the righteousness of faith, of Christ through faith in him. And so Luther's legacy for the gospel was a recovery, number one, of the, of the centrality of the word. The centrality of the word of God in the church. We saw this in Romans 10, 17, which says, Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word 
of Christ. How, how do you come to faith in the gospel? You must hear the message of Christ. You must hear the word of Christ. You must hear the scripture. And Luther understood that. We've got another quote for him. The nature of the word is to be heard. If you were to ask a Christian what his task is, and by what he is worthy of the name Christian, there could be no other response than hearing the word of God. That is faith. He goes on to say, the ear is the only organ of the Christian. Think about that for a moment. We see Christ by hearing. So many people want to see things, but very few want to hear what the Lord has said. It's always been the word of God coming to his people. It was the word of God in the Old Testament, and it is now the word made flesh coming in the New Testament in Jesus Christ that is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. It will pierce your heart. It will awaken the soul. The reason people do not believe is because they do not hear with faith. They do not hear the word of Christ. And this is exactly what we see in the Gospels, is it not? You recall the stories where Jesus heals the blind people? What's ironic is that the, it's the blind who actually see. Everybody who, ha- who isn't blind doesn't see. But they know who he is. They call him out. You're David, the king. You're the son of God. Yet they're blind. They truly see who Jesus is. That's the true nature of faith. And Luther understood that. And that comes through the centrality of the word. In other words, we come to see and know Christ by hearing Christ in his word. It is the word of God that is living and active and produces faith in the heart of the sinner. And so this is why Luther and the rest of the reformers were so adamant about getting the scriptures in the everyday language of the people. This is why we, we give ourselves to Bible translation, not only on the mission field, but c- continue to do that because we want to pass down the word of God to the next generation. We want it to be in a way that they can understand it. Not only that, that they would, this is why we have our pulpits in the center, or at least more prominent. The Catholic Church, the, the Mass, the, the, the sacrament, much, which only the clergy could actually participate in. There was a, a clear divide. Well, they turned a, a stone table into a wooden table, which would signify the cross, and then they moved the pulpit to the center and made it the word center. That's why we have it the way we do today. Not only that, but they would sing songs which were rich in Scripture in their language. This was new. They would sing songs in their language. I was reading recently on uh, the worship services of the, Ref- of, of the period during the Reformation. We do Scripture reading. Well, the music minister, Chris West, would uh, be hired to put the Scripture reading to song, and you would learn a new song every Sunday because you would sing and I'm sure it was, you know, really awesome, like, the power of God for salvation, you know, you know, is, you know, for everyone who believes, and everybody would chant that and do that. But they, what were they doing? They were trying to get the word pressed into their, their heart. You can see, I was, I was a sinner. I sing poorly. They, they understood the gospel was entrusted as a stewardship and it must be passed down to the next generation this is why the worship wars are silly 
Because Luther, we sang, a mighty fortress is his God, our God. That's Luther's hymn. That was like contemporary out the wazoo for them. That was a contemporary song. That's why we sang a new song this morning in the spirit of the Reformation. We need to learn new songs with instruments, singing them loud for a new generation to hear. Now, we, don't, we try to do that balance. We, 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 we try to sing some songs of, of old. But we're, we're just really handing a baton off to the next generation. And that's why we, we, we sing new songs, new hymns, new spiritual songs who accurately portray the content of the gospel and the scripture. That's what matters. That was the heart of the Reformation, not to make sure we sang a mighty fortress is our God for all eternity. I think Luther would maybe be a little mortified about that. But you know what we don't do? We don't sing it in German. We sing it in English. And there's new editions that try to freshen up the language. We did a kind of throwback this morning. But most of you are like, I have no idea what Lord of Sabaoth is. And so we have to update you so you can understand it. Just like we update, not changing the scriptures, but we keep it in the vernacular, the everyday tongue. We don't want it to become an elitist level that no one else except the educated and those who have been taught these things from their childhood could only understand and know. We want the neighborhood to come and hear the gospel. That was the heart of Luther. He even thought dearly about how to train up children. They had services throughout the week, I think very much like our, our Wednesday night. They had services for the uneducated and children. I'm sure that would have been really appealing in our day. Come on, Wednesday night for our service for the uneducated and children. But they did. And he says this, Let no one think himself too clever and despise children's games. Christ, in order to train men, had to become a man. So if we wish to train children, we must become children. There's just a sweetness to that. We embody the word and we bring it to people. That is the heart of the Word of God. That is the heart of God Himself. He is the seeker. And if we want to think, oh, they'll just come to us. They just need to adjust to us. They need to do... No, that's not how God treated us. And the whole revival that broke out was because the Word of God came to them. That's the centrality of the Word that Luther recovered. Reformation was also about recovering the doctrine of justification by faith alone. The gift of justification. Luther's study of Scripture, particularly Romans, led him to understand this doctrine, not just from Romans 1.17, but looking all through Romans. And I think particularly of Romans 3.20-26. You might turn there. You do need your Bibles this morning, believe it or not. Romans 3.20. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in God's sight. Anybody who tells you otherwise is contrary to the word of God. Why? Because it's through the law that comes the knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Go on down. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Righteousness of God has been communicated to us not through the letter of the law, but through the word of Christ. And as a gift, 
He goes on, there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift. This is given to you through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Whom God put forth as a propitiation by his blood. Do you know where your, the, the satisfaction for your sin has been satisfied? Not in your good works. Not in the practice of the, of the Lord's Supper or, or, the, or the Mass as the, as the Roman Catholic Church believes. No, it took place 2,000 years ago on a hill called Golgotha where our Savior was nailed to the cross. And he drank the cup of God's full fury and wrath for our sins. He purchased us there. And how do you receive that? To be received by faith. You believe that message. You give your life to it. As Jesus told the disciples, if you want to come after me, deny yourself. Stop believing in yourself. Stop trusting in yourself and the things of this world. Come give your life to me because I've given my life for you. And for Luther, this doctrine of justification by faith alone was the summary of all doctrines. It was the article of faith upon which the church stands or falls. He says this, nothing in this article, he's talking about justification by faith, can be given up or compromised, even if heaven and earth and things temporal should be destroyed. He's saying, we'll die on that hill. That's, that's what he's talking about. We'll, we'll turn this world upside down and we'll fight for that one. Why? Because it's the heart of the gospel. Luther also understood the depth of human rebellion and sin. And we see here in his legacy the sinner's need for grace. He understood, Romans 3, 1, that no one is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. He understood, Romans 5, 12 and following, that all are in Adam and we're all under a curse. That we are in bondage to sin. And because we are in bondage and enslaved to sin... God's grace is the only liberator. Luther wrote a paramount work on this called The Bondage of the Will. And in this, he argues that we need grace to awaken us from the illusion of freedom. Some of you think you're free as you pursue your sin. But the scripture tells you that you're actually in bondage to it. Your will, your desires, every fabric of your being is held captive by your sin. And although the world will champion you and tell you you're doing what's right, follow your heart, you're on the path of death. It's only the light of the gospel that shines in the heart, God's grace that awakens the sinner. That's what Luther was getting after. He had wrestled with the word of God. And something happened where the word opened up his eyes. Grace happened. And his soul was free. We're going to read, or we're going to sing the song, And Can It Be? Charles Wesley speaks of his soul being captive in prison, but the glide of the gospel shining forth and breaking the shackles off. What does Luther mean by the fact that we have an illusion of freedom? Sin's deceptive. Romans 6. You were slaves to sin, but now in Christ you become slaves of righteousness. And we must be rescued by grace who liberates our wills to know and love him. It's also led to an understanding of the true marks of the church. 
The Reformation was not only a recovery of the gospel, but a recovery of true worship in the church. God's true church was not a building or institution, but it was the communion and fellowship of the saints. That is, God's people are created by God's word. I challenge you to look at in the scripture. Where does God's people create God's word? It never happens that way. Always God's people show up where God speaks, right? Burning bush, Luther's just out, I mean Luther. Moses is out in a field, God speaks. Abraham is out wandering as a pagan, God speaks. And he creates a people. And he creates liberation. And for each one of us who've come to know Christ, the way we came to know him and became a new creation is because he had spoken. It goes this way, not the other way around. And that was what marked the true church. The true church would be marked by the true preaching and teaching of the gospel. Where the word of God resounds. Where, where, where you could go and you can hear God speak. Because God's word was taught. Not only that, the true church was also marked by the right and true administration of the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper. Not as a, a, a sacrament dispensing uh, merits of righteousness to you. No, but... Through baptism and the Lord's Supper, the Word of God is communicated to you. This also resulted in the recovery of what we call the priesthood of all believers. It means there was no hierarchy in the church between the clergy and the laity, at least in a spiritual sense. I mean, we recognize roles in the church, but talking about a sense, I'm not like closer to heaven than you are. I bear the same righteousness that, that Christ has given that he's given you. There is no special distinction, hierarchy of, of saints. No, we're all beloved. We're all saints. We're all elect in Christ. There aren't tears, and you will find nothing of that in Scripture. This is what we saw last Sunday in Romans 16, 1 through 16. Paul's just talking and labeling people according to their status in Christ. So Paul, as did Luther... Reading Paul understood the church in all its diversity, ministry, and unity is all one in Christ. So we conclude here, and we're going to turn to the table. Luther's legacy is marked by an unwavering hope in Christ. The gospel is where we're given hope, brothers and sisters. The hope of resurrection, the hope of life. Romans 5 tells us that, that through Christ we have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Do you rejoice in your sufferings? Knowing that suffering produces hope, and hope that will not disappoint Luther's hope was in Christ, even through great trials and suffering. Luther understood that one who has never suffered cannot understand what hope is, and that's true. If you, if you do not know suffering at any level, you don't know the hope of Christ. And this can happen in, in small ways, temptations, sins, but also in great trials. Luther's greatest trial was when his beloved daughter Magdalene, she was just almost 14, was struck ill and died. Church historian Timothy George writes of Luther, he says, broken-hearted Luther knelt beside her bed and begged God to release her from this pain. 
When she had died and the carpenters were nailing down the lid of her coffin, Luther cried out, Hammer away! On doomsday she'll rise again. Do you have that confidence? When that confidence come out of a great brokenness and dear pain, a confidence that as suffering comes your way, bring it on because though today we die, tomorrow we live. Or the world says today we live, tomorrow we die. Do you know anything of that gospel, that hope? That's the hope of the gospel. Luther, before he died, was on his deathbed, 1546. He too became ill just almost four years later. So on February 18th, he's in his hometown of Eisleben. It's about 1 a.m. He's, he's ill on his deathbed. He wakes up at 1 in the morning. And those around him are, 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 are watching him and, and hear him comforting himself with Psalm 31.5, the very psalm that Jesus comforted himself on the cross. Into your hand I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me. And before he died, one of his followers, Justice Jonas, asked him, Reverend Father, will you die steadfast in Christ and in the doctrine that you have preached? And it's as if Luther, with all his might, with his last breath, said, yes, and he died. It's my prayer that to our dying breath, we would say yes and amen to those things. And that we would hold fast to Christ. In just a moment, we're going to do just that. As we partake in the Lord's Supper, I'm going to ask Pastor Gary to come forward. But as I said at the outset of the sermon, I don't want you to marvel at the man, but at the man's Savior. That's what I want us to do as we come. um, Gary's going to lead us in a prayer of confession and then lead us in the Lord's Supper. But as we do so, I, I pray that until our dying breath, we can say along with Paul in Romans 8, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory to be revealed in us when Jesus returns. And so we partake of this table proclaiming his death until he returns. Brother, come on up and lead us.